This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is... The Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hunt. Great to have you as always. I suppose we could call it the final countdown. Remember that song? We used to play all the time. Was it Queen? Who does that song? I don't even remember now. They like to play it at sports games in the last quarter to add a little dramatic flourish. If Trump doesn't have quite a showing tonight, well, I don't know. The conventional wisdom is that, well... It's probably over no matter what, but certainly if he doesn't have a very strong showing at the debate tonight, it'll be it'll be the end for the Trump campaign. We'll have a Hillary presidency. I don't know. I don't want to be one of these people that, that don't believe the polls, but I'm not sure I believe the polls, <laughs> meaning that I feel like there are some things that are not necessarily reflected in them or that perhaps they're not taking into account some factors that will make a big difference on Election Day itself. I feel like there's a very real possibility of that. I can't be totally sure, but no one's sure of these things, as I've told you so many times. Nobody can predict the future. And so here we are. Uh, Tonight's debate is supposed to uh, focus a bit on foreign policy. I don't think that's going to be a, a really robust exchange because, if nothing else... These are two candidates who really both have foreign policy as, as a weakness. And I think that means it's a bigger weakness for Hillary Clinton because she had been secretary of state. This should be right in the center of her wheelhouse. Uh, this should be something that is really very much an advantage for her. And instead, what we see is that Hillary Clinton has a record of failure as a secretary of state. Hillary Clinton was by no means the foreign policy guru that she likes to pretend to be. And she's been so uh, so long a member of the Democratic Party and the progressive establishment that she can't see the obvious, and she won't say the obvious. Things like, we have a problem with a contingent, with a subset of Islam that is jihadist, uh, that is Islamist, that seeks to elevate the Sharia, that believes in violence for the advancement of a religious political cause, 
And that, I think, means that Trump has the ability to score some points here, such as it is. I think he actually can look like the stronger, uh, the stronger candidate, at least when it comes to fighting ISIS. With Russia, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I don't, I don't really know what to say about Trump's feelings with regard to Russia. Um, I, I think that it's quite clear to me, at least, that he doesn't really know very much about it. He has a certain fondness for. Vladimir Putin, at least the perception of Putin that he has, which doesn't take into account that Putin's a strong man and uh, has a long history of all kinds of corrupt dealing and jailing journalists. And Putin uh, critics end up dead in very suspicious circumstances. Uh, but Hillary's for sale. So I, I think it's unfair to focus too much on Trump not liking or Trump liking Putin too much. When Hillary will like anybody, if the price is if the price is right, she will stand up and support their cause. Or remember, Bill Clinton wanted to give a speech, a paid speech, more or less. uh, It was through a cutout, I think, but it uh, had to do with North Korea. I think Zimbabwe was also on the list and didn't end up doing it. So Bill draws a line. I'll draw the line at Zimbabwe and North Korea. He does draw the line somewhere, but it's not not uh, not a highly ethical guy we're talking about here same thing with hillary um the 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 debate tonight i I think is uh not going to change very many minds i don't think it's going to be uh all that substantive although i i do think that chris wallace will ask questions that allow for more policy than a lot of the other debates have been filled with i think that's very likely but Hillary's going to go into an attack mode over Trump, and it's just going to be Trump is a, a sexist who grabs women and and assaults women. Uh, it's It's been a really uh, interesting and disheartening phenomenon to watch the sort of conflation of all of these different violations into one broad term of sexual assault. Trying to kiss somebody and having them turn away is not sexual assault. Grabbing somebody that doesn't want to be grabbed is sexual assault. But I've heard these things spoken of when people are criticizing Trump as though these are similar or they're the same. And never mind the fact that there's also no difference, it seems, in people's minds between rape, and which is a very specific crime. It's written out in legal code and sexual assault, which rape is a type of sexual assault, but not all sexual assaults are rapes. Uh, and the media likes to hammer this idea that Trump is engaging all these all these assaults or was engaging in all these assaults all the time. And it's really, I think, to create in the mind of the listener this idea that Trump is a uh, is a criminal, uh, a sex criminal, which is a fascinating state of affairs because we know that Bill Clinton is much more likely to be the sex criminal, to be a, a, a deviant in the eyes of the law when it comes to his sexual conduct. That we have to sit here and talk about any of this, though, and I know I fall into the trap, too, and I'm sort of chiding myself for this, that we sit here and have to talk about what these candidates, well, in one case, a candidate's spouse, but what they've been up to in that regard, what they've done when there are so many critical issues facing the country. And I feel like we've been robbed. Uh, We've been robbed of a real discussion about the issues that matter to most Americans in the earlier days there was some room for policy. The discussions to me seemed to at least touch on issues that people really cared about um, before the before the conventions. Look, in the Republican primary, immigration was getting a lot of attention 
and immigration should get more attention. The Democrats we had on, what was it, Mark Krikorian last week, the Democrats have moved further and further left on immigration. No one seems to notice. They're really close to being open borders at this point. The Democrats are in a place where they more or less won't tell anybody that they can't stay in the country. They might want to count who comes into the country. They might want to have control over the process. And, of course, they'll want to register them to vote, especially if they come from backgrounds with very limited uh, education, skills, perhaps non-English speaking. They're going to need a lot of help from the state. The Democrats are the party of the state. This just becomes a machinery for turning out votes. Democrats have been doing this for quite a long time. They've been doing it since people had to show up on steamships, and now here they are showing up on planes or running across the border or uh, hopping on the back of a pickup truck. So uh, I, I don't know what's going to be the final, uh, the final dis, uh, dispensation after tonight's debate. I, I don't foresee it changing all that much in the polls. I don't think that there's going to be a moment of revelation. There's nothing that Trump can really say about Hillary at this point that I think hasn't already been said, won't change the minds of any Democrats. Now you get into the weeds with independents and women voters in the suburbs in certain states. This is where all of a sudden things like the ground game and the different things that people do to try and turn out a very specific subset of the vote. All of a sudden we find ourselves in a place where that's the determining factor. Those are the determining factors. Uh, and it's tough to see how this all will shake out. I, I will say that the stories about Hillary going into red states and the narrowing gap in some of these red states, they're trying to create the perception of a wipeout so that they will then have the reality of one. That much is clear to me. And this is uh, th- this is obvious, I think, if you just take a moment. If you take a, a step back and you think to yourself, what exactly, uh, why is the media doing this so early? It doesn't benefit them to make it seem like this is all over already. It, it's much better to have a horse race. It's much better for people to think that this is an election that will come down to the wire. And then whatever the results may be, they do the sort of postmortem of the campaigns. And all of a sudden it's Christmas. We got the inauguration 2017 and everyone moves on. No, they want you to think that this is all over and then it's done. Uh, and it has been it has been a depressing election. I actually just saw uh, one of my neighbors in the elevator and he said, uh, he said, I haven't seen you. I haven't seen you on CNN in a while. And I said, I know. I know, bro. It's been a little while. He says, what's up with that? I said, well, I don't even know this guy, by the way. He just I've seen him in the elevator before. I said, well, I'm not a I'm not a Trumper. I'm planning. I'm planning to vote for Trump, but I'm not a Trumper, meaning I'm not somebody who's been pro-Trump, all in for Trump all along, I'm certainly opposed to Hillary. Uh, and if you fall into the, if, if you're not in one of those categories, though, if you're not either all in for Hillary, ready for her, or somebody who will give a full-throated defense of all things Trump, you have a limited utility, at least on some networks at this point in time, which I understand. They want, the, the, it's the final leg of an election here. They want real partisans. They want people that, will fight for their guy or gal. Uh, I don't really know what this all is going to mean. Uh, we'll talk a bit about, I think, some of the implications of a Trump victory and a Trump loss later on with one of our uh, friends from National Review. Uh, I, I'm not sure where any of this really goes from here. 
I do think that the debate tonight will be an opportunity for the American people to once again see that Hillary Clinton will say anything is deeply corrupt, is not somebody whose word can be trusted, who has no uh, particular scruples or um, ideologically, I think she's now just really all about the cult of Hillary. I I think her true leftist days have been kind of left behind her. Um, Maybe they'll come roaring back when she finds herself in the big seat with the big job. But in the meantime, I have to say, I find it uh, I find it depressing and distressing that we have this woman, Hillary Clinton, likely to be based on the polls we're seeing the next president of the United States. Maybe it will not happen. I know there are some who are hoping that Evan McMullen wins Utah and then it gets thrown into the House. I, I, <laughs> I wish you the best with that. I wish you the best with the idea that Somehow this will be the craziest election in the history of elections. Maybe it is the case. Maybe it is true that there will be some, well, not unforeseen, but highly unlikely aberrant event that throws all of this into a different place. But in the meantime, I have to say it has not been, I don't think it's been good for the country. Um, Even if my, and preferred is not a great way to put it, but even if my preferred candidate in this election, uh, well, if the, my preferred candidate loses, we won't have even had a public hearing worthy of the name of the major issues facing the country. We haven't talked about really the debt, the deficit. It's been just a base gutter, mudslinging fight between two people who are very imperfect. That much we can say. And I think one of them gives you the chance of some conservative policies or at least some better policies. The other gives you the promise of everything you don't want in government. Then the question just becomes, is it better to be in opposition to Hillary than trying to prop up a highly imperfect Trump? I don't have these answers. I don't think anybody has these answers right now. Um, I'm really appalled to see so many Democrats who just lack the uh, intellectual honesty and fortitude to show any misgivings about their candidate, but I guess they realize it's all about winning at this point. They can figure out, they can deal with imperfect Hillary later. They can push her in more progressive directions once it's already been established that she's uh, the president of the United States. Last, last presidential debate. Here it is tonight. It'll be quite a face-off, I think. I do think Trump will come out swinging. I don't think he's going to be more sort of laid back, and uh, I'm hoping he doesn't get boxed into a corner just because it's boring as well. I just I would really like it to not be boring because I'm going to be watching this tonight and live tweeting it. I'd rather him not get boxed into a corner where he finds himself talking about real estate deals from the 80s that nobody remembers or gives a what about in the first place. I'd, I'd like it to be on the major issues facing this country, And I'm hoping he makes the case because here's the one bit of solace I can give you. I think that Hillary's it's not going to be a landslide. Um, Hillary, whether she wins by a lot, you know, a a strong margin or just by a little bit, she'll be as a candidate hobbling into the Oval, Oval Office. She has not won over the American people. There's not all this enthusiasm. It's not with it's not like it was with Obama right away meaning that everybody had to say, okay, well, he's going to be great, right? Let's give it a chance. Let's see how this goes. There will be opposition to her from day one. That opposition will be strong, and she will be a candidate. She will be a president, rather, who is 
easy to oppose and obstruct in comparison to Obama back in 2009. And obstruction, I think, when it comes to government power is a good thing. All right, team. Sponsors half hour is Yankee Hill Machine. Look, I got an idea. If you are somebody who cares about firearms, if you are into firearms and accessories, sound suppressors, all kinds of products for uh, for your firearm, you should just go to YHM.net. Yankee Hill Machine has got their line of new products up there, and you'll check it out. The stuff is awesome. They've got a whole line of ARs. Uh, they they make their own sound suppressors. They have become a major force in this market. And the stuff they have is just really cool. I mean, they've got YHM's 3300 stainless uh, 30, ta- uh, 30 cal QD Phantom M2 suppressor. That's quite a mouthful. You're going to want to check it out. Just go to YHM.net. Yankee Hill Machines got it all right there for you. They've got the YHM 9680 flip rear sight as well. Ooh, very nice. High speed. You'll enjoy. YHM.net. YHM.net. Yankee Hill Machine. And we'll be right back. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. The Buck Sexton Show. So it's the final countdown by Europe that I was referencing before. Not, I think I said I thought it was Queen, but it's, it's Europe. Thank you to uh, Michael and uh, Matt and a bunch of other people, a bunch of other Team Buck folks on Twitter who made sure to keep me on the straight and narrow. The path of truth is how we do it in the Freedom Hunt. Dave in Pennsylvania, what's up, buddy? What's up, buddy? Hey, Buck, good, good afternoon. Hey, I'm with you on the uh, on the Trump candidacy. I can't stand it, but I've got to vote for him just because of keeping Hillary out. And I think tonight Trump needs to own the controversies. Just come on out there and say, yeah, I did this stuff. I did that. I did this. And I talked about this. I didn't do that. But we are here to select the leader of the free world. Is this the basis on which you're going to make your decision? Now, I've got an opponent standing across from me and here's the bill of particulars against her. And you can probably write the script better than I can. She is unqualified for this office by thought, word, and deed. And here is why. And when Chris Wallace tries to interrupt, he can say, be quiet. I'm not done talking yet. And keep going and keep going and keep going and hit it and hit it and hit it. And if he needs to, drop the mic and walk off. <laughs> you, you want a Trump mic drop moment? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I would just come out there and say this person is unqualified, does not deserve to be in this race, can't, shouldn't be on this stage. Here's why. And go through 10, 15 minutes of why, why, why. And refer to websites or whatever for backing it up. Just come out firing and then leave it there. Do you think that'll sway voters, though? I mean, this may be entertaining I, and maybe all the Trump can really it's do. Gotta, it's got to wake people up. It, We've been so overwhelmed with this nonsense about who grabbed what where. It's got nothing to do with Syria. It's got nothing to do with Russia. It's got nothing to do with Russia. It's got nothing to do with Europe. It's got nothing to do with anything. It's got nothing to do with the economy. And yeah, well, we've got this, this a notion of, of having a fight. Family. Yeah, look, it, the, the fight over who's a, um, a worse person, or which is really kind of what it's turned into. Um, I, I don't think that I, I don't think that's a place that. Well, first of all, it's not useful for the American people to hear this, really. 
And I think more and more right. we see that Americans view their government as kind of transactional. Uh, a lot of Americans aren't, you know, oh, the government needs to function in a certain way and there need to be ethics and there needs to be an adherence to the Constitution. It's what are you going to do for me? You know, what's Trump going to do for me? What's Hillary going to do for me? I, I wish it wasn't the case, but that's what it, that's what I see. That's what it feels like to me. Well, so, yeah, that's the path we've been going on since uh, since the Depression. Yeah. You know, it's all about me, what the government's going to do for me. And that is not what the government is yeah. going to have to do. And the problem with that, of course, is that that's always tilted towards the Democrats because they'll always promise to do more for you because they'll always find somebody else to take stuff from. That's what they say. But they're yep. also taking from all of us. Dave and PA, my man, great to talk to you. Thank you for calling in. I appreciate it. Uh, team, the phone lines are open. What do you think about tonight's debate? Does it matter who will win? What do you expect to see? Do you care? 888-900-3393. We'll be right back. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. This is the Buck Sexton Show. All right, team. You know what it is. Spy time. Agent, you are joining a clandestine meeting in progress. You will now be read into sensitive programs in real time. Do not communicate this information with any other assets in the field. This is Spy Time. John Schindler, national security columnist for the New York Observer, joins. He is uh, up there with a piece on Observer.com. East-West spy war heats up with arrest of Russian hacker in Prague. Mr. Schindler, formerly of the NSA, what is up, sir? Hey, Buck. Uh, well, this looks like a bad uh, bad day for Moscow, uh, maybe a bad day for WikiLeaks. Uh, we'll know soon enough, but the uh, checks have come out, and after holding the guy for a couple of weeks, wants the world to know they have a Russian hacker in their hands. So what happened here? Give us the backstory uh, a little bit. Because, you know, this yeah, is not uh, – it's all about Trump grabbing women these days. That's the only thing anybody's allowed <laughs> to know about. That's the only news story that's out there. Is everyone clear on that? Right. Um, Well, in recent months, as WikiLeaks, which the U.S. intelligence community has recently publicly said is a front for Russian intelligence, which it is, I've been saying that for a long time, as their leaks have gotten worse about a lot of things, most most importantly uh, Hillary Clinton and the Democrats recently, but they've exposed a lot of people across the Western world. Western countries, including the U.S., have lost their sense of humor about this, and in recent months the FBI has been working hard with other Western security agencies to locate, track down known Russian hackers, and when possible, get them off the streets. And we know that 
on the 5th of October, acting on lead information that was given to them presumably by us. The Czech police with the FBI arrested a Russian hacker in the middle of a meal at a swank hotel at a re- hotel restaurant in downtown Prague. Uh, that was two weeks ago. They now want everyone to know they have him. Uh, everyone assumes he'll be extradited to the U.S. at some point because the word on the street is he's been involved in hacking Americans, perhaps even the current sensation with WikiLeaks and, uh, and John Podesta and Hillary Clinton. Well, we will know soon. Sounds like it's a good time to be a hacker. This guy's with like his Russian girlfriend. He's at a swanky yeah, hotel well, in Prague. I, I gotta say, well, a hacking clearly. business. I didn't realize. I think of guys in basements that you know haven't exactly. showered in months. But oh, clearly not this guy. Uh, someone in Moscow was paying him quite handsomely. Clearly, with his expensive automobile, nice restaurant, and a high end hotel. Again, as you said, not not how I tend to envision hackers. But someone's been paying him, and of course, that's that's what needs to be exposed here. Is these these hackers are not individuals; they're working on behalf of the Russian state violating the privacy of Americans. And like everyone else, I'm finding what WikiLeaks is telling us about, uh, you know, the Democrats are pretty juicy stuff. We have to remember this is violating the law and violating people's privacy. I think our country will not be in a happy place if everyone's privacy is violated on a regular basis. We can't really function that way. It does seem a little bit uh, coincidental in the timing that the DNC is getting all these uh, all these emails are out there now that are not helpful to the Democrat cause. And the executive branch of our federal government is now perhaps involved in actually tracking down hackers and trying yeah. to uh, trying to bring them to justice. There's been a lot of hacking going on for a long time of all kinds of corporations, yeah. government entities and such in this country. Uh, do, do you think that it just so happens that right before an election, all of a sudden there's this uh, – renewed effort underway to track down and arrest these hackers or well, are there politics here or what there certainly are politics here and i'll be the first one to say that obama has been derelict for more than three years as hacking and other espionage particularly but not exclusively by moscow has taken a real toll on our national security and our political life beginning with edward Snowden, up to the hacking of everything of almost every major government department huge numbers of american corporations it took a direct attack on his own party to make Obama get serious about this. And I think we have to be honest about that. That said, I think it's clear that the pressure inside our security agencies, inside the Pentagon, has been building for three years that the White House has to start getting serious. So this doesn't come out of nowhere. It's been building for a long time. The FBI has been prepping for this all year. And, of course, we see that we're not alone in this. You know, the the British on uh, Monday cut off the bank accounts of RT, that is Kremlin News, in the U.K., the very same day Julian Assange coincidentally lost his Internet access from his, uh, from his spider hole in the uh, Ecuadorian embassy in London. So things are finally happening that amounts to pushback, but it's coming awfully late, let's be honest. Yeah, well, this stuff, in, in a sense, it's new in that this is, we're in the digital era, and so the platforms and you know, the, the mechanisms and distribution has changed. But you know very well, John, and this is just more for, for everyone listening, I mean, the, the KGB has been trying to buy off uh, journalists, get stories planted in papers, uh, using the media as a front for Russian or Soviet propaganda isn't new in the least. In fact, I think people have just forgotten how pervasive it was. That's right. And during the Cold War, the Soviets said, say with some success, recruiting Western journalists to disseminate rank Kremlin propaganda. Uh, and this continued even after, in a small way, after the Cold War. But it's really come back under Mr. Putin. 
Uh, and as you hinted, I mean, there's absolutely nothing new about this. The only thing that's new is the Internet makes it easier to steal some secrets. It certainly makes it easier to disseminate disinformation, to use the proper term, which is Russian facts that are not necessarily all facts. It's some facts, some gray matter, and some outright lies. And the Internet just makes the news cycle short, so it, so it makes the dissemination of these lies short, quick, easy, and painful, frankly, for those on the receiving end. I mean, uh, you know, I'm sure the Democrats aren't really happy with the news cycles every morning when they get up and see what WikiLeaks, that is the Kremlin, has now put on the street about them. Now, I, I want to ask, what exactly, what, what is the purpose of this, other than, is it just to stick a thumb in the eye of the United States? You know, on a very separate issue, we had an expert on, uh, on, the, on Yemen and the, and the Yemeni civil war on yesterday. I said, why would Houthi rebels fire a rocket at a U.S. destroyer? <laughs> and I've asked more than one. And, and the answer seems to be sort of because they wanted to. I mean, it's a really dumb thing to do. It doesn't help them in any, in any uh, strategic or, 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 or tactical sense. I mean, there's no rhyme or reason yeah. other than they don't like America. They got a rocket. They're going to fire it at one of our ships, even though they know that we're going to fire rockets back that will actually hit them. Are the Russians just doing all this stuff to the Democrats because they figure Hillary's going to win, and so this is more, you know, they'd rather uh, annoy the regime that they're expecting to, or do you really think they, they believe they can tip the election in Trump's favor? I mean, that would seem to be uh, a bit yeah. too grandiose That's even for their thinking. Why are they doing this yeah. is what I'm trying to ask. Um, they're doing it, one, because they can, and to let us know that they can. Uh, as you hinted, I, I think you'd have to be pretty delusional, even by Kremlin standards, to think Trump's going to win on November 8th. But by distracting everyone creating confusion, creating pain for the Democrats who are going to be coming into office in mid-January. They are distracting our entire political process off other questions, and they're making us look foolish. I mean, let's be honest. We're supposed to be, with all of our problems, the global hegemon, the last remaining superpower, and look at us. We're, you know, Trump's more absurd by the day. Hillary Clinton looks like a crook, which, hey, let's be honest, she is. Uh, and, and all the world knows. And that... That is something the Russians want because it makes us look weak and foolish. I think, frankly, they're being very short-sighted because what they are likely to wind up with is a President Hillary Clinton who's exceptionally angry at Moscow over trying to steal what she views, of course, as her election and cause her personal pain. Uh, I don't think Hillary Clinton has a lot of sensible foreign policy views, but I know the Clintons are all about vendettas. So there will be payback for this. And to explain the Russian mentality, I'll quote a KGB friend of mine. Yes, he came to live in the United States after the end of the Cold War. And he actually, back in the 70s and 80s, worked with the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization, uh, which the terrorist group, which the Soviets gave uh, weaponry, armaments, training to. But they didn't actually ever tell the PLO to do anything, even though they could have. They could have said, hey, blow up X, Y, and Z, and they never did. And I asked my KGB friend, well, why didn't they say, hey, why don't you hit the embassy? They looked at me and said, because everything they do is good. <laughs> Meaning... Any attacks on the West of any kind, ultimately, in Moscow's mind, are beneficial to them. But so the basically, token, the, K the KGB's policy with the PLO was, you do you. You do you. We'll throw money and guns at you and give you training, but just, just go be you, because we like what you do. And we don't need to tell you. You know how to be you better than we can be you. And I think that's very much what's going on. They're not directing Western hackers what to steal or what to leak. Just go out and leak. We'll give you stuff. Go out and do it. They're, they are weaponizing WikiLeaks and letting WikiLeaks be WikiLeaks. And that is devastating to us, frankly. It is undermining our political process and people's already weak confidence in our democratic small-D system. 
Which, what is it? You know, what is an effective countermeasure to this, other than stopping the hacking, which is not really feasible, that's right? I mean, you can limit it, but you too. can't entirely stop it. What's what's a response that actually gets them to sit up and take notice? Um, I, I think one is putting WikiLeaks out of commission. Uh, having uh, Julian Assange wind up in Supermax for the rest of his days will make it very clear uh, that there is not impunity with this. You cannot attack the United States and our system. Uh, and get away with it. We, you know, we're not going to go to war with Russia over this, although we're going to cyber war, and we can cause them pain, and we will be. But what has to be clear is that the conduits, the fronts, the cutouts in the West, like WikiLeaks, the Russians have been using this for for years, have to be shut down and held accountable to the same laws as everyone else. Hacking is a crime, <laughs> and it has to be treated that way. Uh, can we keep you through and talk about Cuba on the other side of the break, John? Do you have sure. a minute? All right, we've got John Schindler. He's a national security columnist for the New York Observer, formerly of the NSA. We're going to talk about Castro spies on the flip side of the break. Stay with me. The Buck Sexton Show. Discover more at theblaze.com slash radio. The Blaze Radio Network. Listening to the Buck Sexton Show. We've got John Schindler from the New York Observer on the line. Uh, his latest, or rather, one of his latest on Observer.com is Obama just opened the door for Castro spies. Cuban intelligence will have a field day in the United States thanks to Obama's latest outreach to Havana. John, tell everybody about the Cuban counterintelligence threat. Yeah, this is something the American public has really very little idea of, unfortunately, although folks in the counter-espionage business do. And that is that Cuba, despite being broke and kind of sad, communist country off our shores, happens to be extraordinarily good at espionage against us and has been for more than 50 years. And the Cubans, uh, despite having very minimal presence in this country in terms of diplomats until recently, have managed to penetrate the U.S. intelligence community and the Defense Department and the State Department time and time again throughout the history of the Castro regime. And what, and what has happened is now that Obama is essentially completely normalizing relations with Cuba, that's about to get a whole lot worse. Yeah, I, I don't understand why the administration, well, uh, there are a lot of things about the administration that, that should be beyond <laughs> my comprehension, but how they think that, yeah. that there's going to be any change in Cuba's uh, policy towards, towards us when it comes to espionage. I mean, this is effective for them. They just like to get stuff to get it and then figure out what they want to yeah. do with it because this is just what they do. This is who they are. It, it, it is asking, you know, is it's like asking a honey badger not to be a honey badger. I mean, this is just what the Cubans do. And frankly, it's one of the few things they're really good at. They've had great success, having been trained by the KGB. They're very – the Cubans bring a discipline to espionage. They don't bring to a lot of other things. Uh, and they've had great success penetrating the U.S. government and stealing a lot of secrets. And unfortunately, these cases, although known to the intelligence community, have never really caught and gotten a lot of traction with the American public because it's not sexy. I mean, we know Russia's a threat. We even kind of know China's a threat. But Cuba, come on. I mean, Cuba's, Cuba's kind of a broke country that drives 1950s U.S. cars, right? I mean, this, is the, 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 this can't be a threat. Well, actually, in espionage terms, the Cubans are always one of the big four in terms of counterintelligence threats to the U.S. government. And I'm afraid that's just going to get worse now because of what Obama's done. Right. And, and once, once the Cubans have something, it's not like it stops with them. If they want to make friends, right. they can always share that information with people that and, do scare us a lot more. this is the critical point that needs to be understood. Because they'll get, well, so what? I mean, if Havana, I don't know if okay, we don't like the Castro's, but so what if they know something? Cuba hardly has an economy, folks. I mean, they don't really have much. What they have... 
uh, is selling secrets. And we know for a fact that a lot of the stuff that Cubans steal, go, steal from us in terms of secret information is sold and or given as gifts by the Cubans to countries that really are a threat to us, like Russia, like China, like Iran. So in that sense, it really does matter if the Cubans steal our secrets because the Cubans may have access that other countries simply don't have. In fact, I can guarantee you that they do. And what Obama has done is, by normalizing relations with Cuba, just as we are now going to open real embassies and consulates in Cuba, they're going to open a genuine embassy in D.C., a whole bunch of consulates around the United States, which are going to be filled with diplomats, many of whom are actually undercover spies. And the Cubans have run circles around us, even in the U.S., without the benefit of real diplomatic facilities. I can only imagine what they're going to be able to achieve once they have them. Right. And, and with a Hillary, let's assume for a second, although I don't want to upset anybody, but let's assume there's a Hillary administration coming in. The Democrats aren't going to want to be highlighting the threat of Cuban espionage and counterintelligence, uh, the, the counterintelligence threat here, because it'll be traced directly back to Obama sort of opening up to them Correct. without any. They, they've t- they've done nothing in response to this other than say, yeah, sure, we'll 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 let you be nicer to us. They, they've given yeah, nothing I, in, you know, as a gesture of goodwill. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the the opening of the door to Cuba uh, looks to me to be totally one sided in the sense we're not asking the Cubans to be nicer to dissidents or to you know sort of improve human rights, the stuff that you know one would think we would ask. We haven't even done that. This is a gimme to the Castro regime, and I got to say, I, I'm someone I'm someone who's favored at least opening some of the door to Cuba for a while because I think the embargo is ultimately counterproductive to what we want. But that's not the same thing as just letting the Cubans have free reign. And that's, that's, in effect, what the Obama administration's doing. And there will be scandals coming from this. But as you said, if it's President Clinton, as it's likely to be, they're not going to want to talk much about it because, again, this will be traced back to the Democrats and Obama letting the Cubans do whatever they like. Last one for you, John. Does the debate tonight really matter, or is this just theater that most people can afford to miss? Uh, I think this theater, honestly, most people can afford to miss, although I understand they want to watch it in case Trump does something truly crazy uh, in front of the cameras. I mean, look, the the Trump campaign has decided they're going to play to their most hardcore base. They're not really looking to convince swing voters or Americans who might be on the fence to vote for them. They're pandering to the folks who are already desperately wanting to vote for Mr. Trump anyway. And that might be a great way to get your base excited. That's not a great way to win national presidential election. So I, I, I'm going to be watching for the fireworks. I'll be tweeting about it, but I, I'm not anticipating much of substance. All right. Our, our man, John Schindler. Not our man hey. in Havana. Our man in, where are you? Are you like not Tampa yet. or something? Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm in Sarasota, actually. Sarasota. Our man in Sarasota. John Schindler. Great to be here as always, Buck. I love the Observer. Great to have you, buddy. Go check out his stuff on Observer.com, at 20 Committee on Twitter. Team Hour 2 coming up. We've got a lot more for you. Stay right there, and we'll be back in just a few. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is The Buck Sexton Show. 
All right, team, welcome back to The Hut. We're joined by our friend Charles Cook. He is the editor of National Review, Review Online and also the author of The Conservatarian Manifesto, available in fine bookstores and on Amazon.com. Mr. Cook, great to have you, sir. Hi, how are you? Doing very well. <laughs> good, good to talk to you, Charles. Uh, so <laughs> we, we got we got a few things to hit on here. I want to get to your piece, which is actually like a little ray of sunshine from from Mr. Cook. Uh, but but first, uh, it, it's sunshine, obviously, with with some other with some storm clouds attached to it. But there's a, there's a debate tonight. Your expectations, your considerations. What do you think about this uh, this whole thing that's going to be going down tonight? Well, I think it's. A- disgrace i think it's pointless at this stage i don't think we learn anything from these debates i don't think they tell us anything important uh, i think the selection has been going on an awful long time and has now in the late stages become uh, a circus so uh, what do i think is going to happen i think hillary will win the debate again because donald trump seems to be incapable of pressing any advantages he might have and of controlling himself i've spoken to you before about what could have been about the tax he could have taken. I think he had an opportunity a while back, but uh, he didn't take it, and I don't think he will tonight either. So it's not going to move the needle with regard to the polls. By the way, where where do you stand on that? I mean, now we're at that point in the season where people are saying, well, are the polls really reflective? Is there is there some black swan event that nobody can foresee because it doesn't, you know, the, the numbers aren't representative? I, I don't know. Do you, do you think that, that he's as far be? Because there, there's an L.A. Times poll that says that he's tied, and there's Rasmussen, but I've heard Rasmussen gets this stuff wrong a lot. I don't know. What do you think? I think he's going to be crushed. I think he is down heavily. Uh, I think he's being soundly beaten. And I think it was inevitable. Uh, It was inevitable, perhaps, that he would be beaten, but not by this much. Uh, And she's a shocking candidate. I can't help but feel if Joe Biden were the nominee, uh, Trump would be losing even more heavily uh, than he is. So, no, I don't think he's going to win. I don't think there's anything hiding in the polls. I suppose there could be some uh, exogenous event that changes the trajectory of the election at a very late stage. But What do you make of all this talk about the election being rigged and voter fraud? There's a lot of discussion about that the last few days. Um, do, you, do you put it – I mean, there is voter fraud, but how much voter fraud is there really, I guess, is, is part of the question. And to say the election is rigged, well, in what context? I, I wonder. But where do you where do you come down on those two on those two points that have gotten a lot of attention? Well, I'd put it like this: uh, there is voter fraud, uh, and it matters. Uh, and where possible, uh, electoral commissions and and state legislatures should do what they can to stop it. Uh, if you look at the uh, senatorial election in two thousand eight in Minnesota, it came down to a handful of votes, and there are those who would say. Uh, that uh, Al Franken should not have been in the Senate. Uh, Yeah, I I think actually a lot of uh, post-election analysis shows that he should not have won, (laughs) that that in fact that was a stolen Senate election, yeah. That matters. I mean, I I don't know enough about it to definitively call it stolen. But when the margins are that small, clearly it matters. Uh, It matters a great deal to the the trajectory of history i mean because he was the 60th vote and that 60th vote was what allowed them to uh, get the initial obamacare bill through that was eventually rammed through using reconciliation uh, later on uh, that said uh, 
that there is voter fraud, that it matters, that it should be taken seriously, uh, is not to say that one can rig a national election. You would even, uh, in a close election, such as, say, 2012, where it came down to 76,000 votes in Florida and 150,000 votes in Ohio, uh, the, the scale of the corruption would have to be astronomical. And there is flatly no evidence whatsoever that that's the case. And I think you can tell that because there's no incentive for Marco Rubio or for Pat Toomey uh, or for Governor Rick Scott uh, to uh, explain that the, the nominee of their own party is incorrect. I mean, if there were serious voter fraud in places like Florida, uh, Republican senators would make a, a big deal out of it, as they have with voter ID for good reason, because that's addressing a, a real and tangible and fixable problem. Charles, can we go to the happy place for a minute? Because I think your your yeah. piece <laughs> that the Republican Party uh, uh, cool it with the Whigs rhetoric, you're saying that, that this stuff about the GOP is dead and, and that it's all over if Trump loses and it's all coming apart, way overblown. And in fact, Trump aside, the GOP is looking pretty good. Uh, walk, us, walk us through the happier side of things here as many of us prepare for a Hillary victory. Ouch. Well, look, I think that, that Donald Trump has been something of a disaster. I think he's going to lose. I think that there will be long-term repercussions. It's going to be tough for Republicans to rebuild trust uh, among constituencies they usually win, uh, whites with college degrees, for example. It's going to be tough for them to make inroads with uh, Hispanics, with Asian Americans. Historically, they've done quite well, and they can do well with those groups when they try. But the notion that we're on the verge of some sort of party extinction is, to me, ahistorical. I mean, for a start, uh, the Whigs were only really around in any meaningful form for 20 years. Uh, they did disappear, but they were immediately placed by the Republican Party that not only picked up all of their ideas, but then dominated American politics for 80 years. So it's a little bit dishonest to suggest that the, uh, the Whigs disappeared and their ideology with them. Uh, the other point here is that uh, the Whigs were a congressional party for a while, and uh, they struggled to win the White House. Now, it is true that uh, the Republicans have recently struggled to win the White House, and they've also struggled to win the popular vote nationally. Part of that is the normal cycle of history. We do go through these phases. It was very difficult for Democrats to win the White House at one point. And the other part of it is they chose this year uh, to immolate uh, themselves. Uh, but they're not in a generally bad position. I mean, it is feasible that had the party chosen, say, Marco Rubio or John Kasich, they would be winning this election. Hillary Clinton is not strong. This does seem to be a change year. Uh, and uh, if that had been the case, we would be looking at uh, a scoreboard that showed that Republicans had won two out of the last four. Uh, if you look elsewhere on the scoreboard, you'll see Republicans are likely to keep the House, which will make it by the end of this congressional term 18 out of the last 22 years that they've run the House of Representatives. Uh, even in the disastrous scenario in the Senate, which is that they lose six seats, seems unlikely they'll lose that many, but suppose they do, they'd be down to 48 to 52, hardly, uh, again, the sign of extinction. They run most of the states, uh, and uh, they're doing very well outside of Trump. Uh, he doesn't seem to be damaging uh, Republican candidates in quite the way people had thought. If you look at Rubio and Iot and Pat Toomey, uh, even Ron Johnson now, coming back in Wisconsin, um, that uh, the Trump campaign is not killing Republicans. And uh, there's some interesting polling data on this. That voters see Trump as being distinct from Republicans per se. 
that he doesn't represent them. A majority of independents uh, say that Trump doesn't represent Republican values. Only 27% of independents say that he does. And a majority of American voters writ large, Republicans, independents and Democrats, say that he doesn't represent the party. So there's a lot of room uh, for growth there. I think we ought to be a little bit careful not to write the party's obituary ahead of time. Now, if Hillary does win, I think it's um, – I'm looking for solace here. And you took us to some, somewhat of a happy place for a moment there. <laughs> there was some, some honesty. There was definitely – there were some peas we had to eat as well, as is, as is the case. That's just a, a reflection of the reality of this election. I would agree with you. Uh, but it seems to me that if Hillary does win, the Democrats will be in a sense – yes, they will have the, you know, the presidency for four years, um, but they will be saddled with a candidate – Unlike what what they had with Obama in 2009, Obama had to fail and fail repeatedly and really sort of show himself to be a sort of unrepentant progressive leftist, unwilling to reach across the aisle in any meaningful sense before opposition to him started to break beyond the, oh, you're just a racist, you're just a hater. I mean, that was really I I think there was a, a sort of a honeymoon period that Obama had coming into office. There'll be nothing akin to that for Hillary Clinton. I mean, she's coming into office. The email thing is legit. It's a disaster. She should have faced criminal charges for this. She did not face criminal charges. She sold office when she was secretary. of This is all out there. It's all true. So those who are saying, well, at least the Republican Party can be unified in opposition to a, a sort of progressive Democrat agenda, I think there's some truth to that in a way that with Obama, they all had to kind of nod their heads and be like, OK, we got to wait for him to mess up before we can say anything. Yes, I think that's right. And I have both an optimistic and a pessimistic take on this. The optimistic take is that coalitions and movements tend to tend to be forced in opposition. Uh, Hillary Clinton is going to be president. Uh, she's going to be uh, an unpopular president. Uh, and Republicans, whatever their uh, political affiliations within the party, uh, are likely to rally uh, against her. Uh, they're also likely to remember uh, that she is in favor of many things that they are against. She is an abortion extremist. Uh, she is a proponent of Obamacare. Uh, she doesn't seem to care a great deal about the Constitution. She's in favor of gun control. Uh, these uh, issues are all going to matter. Uh, and if you look at the map in 2018, especially the Senate map, it is pretty difficult to imagine Republicans losing ground in the legislature uh, and maybe in the states as well. Uh, the, the risk, of course, and this is where the conservative movement needs to take a good, hard look at itself, uh, is that we will end up in 2019 uh, with a lot of Republicans in the House and a lot of Republicans in the Senate, uh, a Democratic president, and the same voices telling their listeners, uh, telling their readers that the reason that X, Y, or Z happened is that Republicans didn't fight hard enough, not that they didn't have a presidential uh, veto overcoming machine, uh, which, of course, doesn't exist. Uh, and then that we end up with some other bad candidate who runs promising, I'm a strong man, I will fix all of the problems that couldn't be fixed in the last three years, when, of course, the problem Republicans are going to face over the next four years if Hillary Clinton is president uh, is that they won't be able to overcome the veto. And they need to have presidential power if they're going to implement serious reform right at some point it, it is and this is this is important because i think we've seen the fruits of this already opposition even relatively successful opposition although i think that's that's debatable whether you know how much of obama's agenda was really enacted despite efforts by 
Congress, and it should be kept in mind, he had the House and the Senate, as everyone listening should, will recall, for two years. So he had a completely clear runway for two years, and then there was uh, opposition that, that, that came into place. Uh, but that's unsatisfying. I'm sorry, Charles, what? And killed almost everything he wanted to do, and including his immigration orders, which were illegal and unconstitutional, but were shot down by the Fifth Circuit at the behest of conservative states, Republican states. Yes, uh, attorney but de- defense doesn't get the populace fired up. I think that's part of the problem. Well, de- and it doesn't get the change, you see, and, that, and I agree. I, it's incredibly frustrating. I can sit here and say, well, uh, correctly, that the Republican House and then the Republican House and Senate have blocked so many policies that Obama wanted. Carbon tax, cap and trade, uh, assault weapons ban, um, the, the uh, tax increases, uh, public option. You know, we could go down the list. Uh, but that's all hypothetical, really, in that it never happened. It didn't happen because we took over the House, uh, but it didn't happen. What people want is they want Obamacare repealed and they want the Iran deal torn up. And I agree. I want all of those things, too. And I also want to remove much of the regulatory state and I want to cut taxes and I want to get Washington out of the way. And I want to return a lot of power to the states. But while President Obama has a veto, that's not going to happen. And we saw that when the House and the Senate got together and passed an Obamacare repeal bill that also defunded Planned Parenthood and Obama vetoed it. And that's not the House's fault. <laughs> they just didn't have enough votes to override the veto. And I just worry we're going to end up in a situation in which people are so angry, this time with Hillary Clinton, um, that they blame Congress when it's not Congress's fault that the constitutional order includes checks and balances in both directions. Last one for you, Charles, before we uh, have to run into a break here. Assuming a Trump loss, which I know every time I say that, by the way, I get some angry Facebook messages and emails from people saying he's not going to lose. And we're just we're wargaming this, everybody. I don't know what's going to happen. Charles doesn't know what's going to happen. The future is not set. We'll see. Okay. with that said, assuming a Trump loss, do you see a, a schism within the party, meaning that there'll be sort of this offshoot of the Republican Party and maybe Trump TV and all this other stuff? Or or will people be like, all right, well, we tried that. Now we got to now we'll get back to sort of, you know, brass tacks. I think it's the million dollar question. Um, I think it's unlikely because, as I say, coalitions tend to be forged in opposition and it will seem more urgent to stop Hillary's agenda than it will to settle scores. And I say that hopefully from both sides of the aisle, because I'm, of course, the hated rhino squish establishment type. I don't want to settle scores. I don't want to purge people. Uh, I think huge mistakes have been made, um, but I'm not interested in fighting a civil war. Um, so uh, that's that's one point to it. Um, I think the other the other point is that um, victory tends to tamp down uh, differences, uh, and it shouldn't be forgotten that although it will be ignored this year because I think Hillary is likely to win. There is a massive schism within the Democratic Party, too. If you look at what happened with the Bernie Sanders insurgency, had he been more charismatic, had he been younger, had he been anyone else, had his message been wrapped in a different bottle, uh, I think that uh, he would have won. Uh, And at that point, the inherent tensions within the left coalition would start to bubble to the surface. Why is it, for example, uh, that white working class union members and social justice warriors and sometimes conservative minorities are under this one umbrella? It's a good question. Um, It is possible, therefore, that you'll see those tensions bubble up in the Republican Party if they do lose. 
Um, that said, the two-party system from both sides tends to reinforce um, existing coalitions. The tectonic plates move pretty slowly. Uh, I don't think there'll be any serious defection. Charles, super quick bonus round question. What's the difference between your accent and Tom Rogan's accent? Is it regional? What, what, why? What, where's the uh, <laughs> Where's the separation? No, we're, we're, well, we're very similar at root, but he's lived in America an awful lot of his life, and so he's been Americanized, and I have lived here only five and a half years, and I haven't been Americanized at all, and I don't think I will be because my wife doesn't want me to be. Uh, yeah, the Cook and Rogan she's accents. American, by the way. The, la- the ladies love him. I should put up a poll online because I'm telling you, <laughs> you guys, every time you come on, I hear about it. Charles Cook is the editor of National Review Online. You should follow him on Twitter at uh, Charles C.W. Cook. Charles, my friend, always great to have you. Thank you for your time. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, team, we'll be right back. Buck Sexton. Buck Sexton. Dispensing the truth. On the Blaze Radio Network. Network. Well, there'll be some uh, interesting guests, it seems, at tonight's debate. Obama, uh, President Obama's half-brother will be Donald Trump's debate guest. Uh, you have, I think there's, who are some of the other, there's some other ones that are going to be showing up that people are all pointing, pointing to and saying, ooh. New York Times also right here, because the Times all in for Clinton, of course. She practically runs the place. Uh, presidential debate, how will Trump and Clinton handle sexual assault allegations? Uh, th- this is bizarro world, everybody. When you have the prime, and this is like front page New York Times before the third presidential debate, the primary issue at hand is whether one candidate was guilty of sexual assault years ago, and all, yes or no, and also is the other candidate guilty of complicity in covering up uh, and victim shaming and any number of other improprieties as sort of an was she an accomplice to sexual assault including rape by the way mind I do not believe Donald Trump has actually been accused of rape I could be wrong on that but or, or at least there is no outstanding rape accusation that I'm aware of there are definitely outstanding rape accusations about Bill Clinton so I mean Jennifer Flowers I mean you can name the people uh, and the conduct that he engaged in is the sort of stuff that you, when you think of sexual assault, that's what comes that's what comes to mind. Uh, but that's how low this has all gotten. I mean, it's you couldn't believe this stuff. If a year ago I had told you that the front page of the New York Times before the third, the day of the third presidential debate, mere weeks from the election, would be who's going to handle the sexual assault allegations better, you'd probably say, "Oh my god." Anyway, that's where it is. I'll be live tweeting it tonight, um, and uh, we'll be, if you want also, we could do a little Facebooking of the debate, too. Maybe we could do a little Facebook Live after. That might be kind of fun. I don't know. I've got all kinds of fun ideas. Um, phone lines are open, team. 888-900-3393. Back right after this break. We're back, and we are joined by our friend Andy McCarthy. He's a senior fellow at the National Review Institute and a contributing editor at National Review, also a former federal prosecutor. Andy, great to have you as always. Buck, great to be here. 
So there's some new stuff, or at least some new analysis you've got here about the Clinton emails that I think everybody needs to hear. Uh, the sort of you know headline I put on it is that based on the Podesta leaks, these are Obama, as you say, the Obama-Clinton emails. President Obama was tied up in this. Can you walk us through? Everyone's heard a lot about emails, Andy, but they haven't heard this angle. What's the Obama-Clinton part of the email server scandal? Yeah, the funny thing, Buck, is this is the dispositive angle, which I've kind of tried to tell people since last spring, probably. But um, it, it eked out that there are about 18. I've, I've heard the number reported at 18 and 22 at different times. But let's say 18 emails between President Obama and Mrs. Clinton over at the time she was secretary of state over her private email account. Uh, which means obviously the president knew that that was how she was operating. What we found out, uh, let, let me back up before we get to the new revelation. What I began to argue last spring was that if Obama was knowingly having high level communications with the secretary of state on a non-secure uh, half uh, homebrew communication system, then he was essentially, even if not in the scope, uh, he was in principle committing the same activity that Mrs. Clinton was permit, uh, committing. And in fact, if you ever indicted Mrs. Clinton, the Obama-Clinton emails would be admissible evidence in the trial against Clinton. So my sense was that that was never going to happen in the sense that the president was never going to allow that to happen. And I think that Obama's conflict of interest more than anything else, was what steered this uh, ship, uh, which ended up in Mrs. Clinton not being charged. We find out with the FBI reports, and this is truly unbelievable, that the president not only had these email exchanges with Mrs. Clinton, he was using an alias, which suggests, to me at least, that she's not the only person he's communicating with, uh, you know, over, uh, over private uh, email communication. And this is important because conversations with the president, with high level officials where they're talking about uh, important U.S. policy or security matters are presumptively classified under the president's own executive order. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter that they're not marked classified. And indeed, General Petraeus, who was prosecuted by the Justice Department for mishandling classified information, one of the things that the Justice Department stressed in that prosecution was that these journals over which he was prosecuted contained his notes of his conversations with the President of the United States, which, again, were presumptively classified. So I think it just underscores that once it was clear that Obama had engaged in this behavior, there was no way they were going to prosecute Clinton for it. And most of what has gone on in the last several months is to change the, in the public mind at least, the law that was necessary uh, or, or that applied to Mrs. Clinton in a way that it was conveyed by the, by the president, by the Justice Department, and by the FBI uh, conveyed in a way that uh, there was no way the evidence met it. So they put out the story that, you know, there was no proof that Mrs. Clinton was trying to harm American national security, even though 
you know, nerds like you and I know that that's not an element of the crime that we're talking about. Right. And, and it, it's also apparent and you make you say this in your piece and it's apparent from the timeline of the history. O- Obama lied about this. <laughs> I think that's worth he, Obama he sure flat out lied. Yeah. And, and we know that now even more on the basis of these uh, WikiLeaks disclosures of John Podesta's hacked emails. Uh, Podesta, in about March of 2015, was transitioning at that point from being the president's top advisor in the White House to the chairman of the Hillary Clinton presidential campaign. Uh, He's there uh, having email communication with uh, the Clinton camp when the New York Times blows this story that Clinton's using this uh, homebrew server system. And he has a conversation, well, not a conversation, he has an email exchange with Cheryl Mills, who was uh, one of Mrs. Clinton's top aides, uh, right after the Times breaks the story and right after the House issues a subpoena for Mrs. Clinton's emails. Podesta says in the email to Cheryl Mills, uh, maybe we should invoke executive privilege on the emails between Hillary and the president. Uh, which means they were actually they are obviously at the front of his mind, at the front of the mind of the White House and at the front of the mind of the Clinton camp. And that's important because about a day after this email, Obama actually goes out and starts making public statements, including some that are televised, saying he didn't know anything about Mrs. Clinton's private system and that he read about it in the news just like everybody else. Right. This is what he's this is like. What not that what uh, is it? Eric Holder or Obama who said that he learned. Uh, no, it's Eric Holder. Right. Who learned about Fast and Furious from the newspapers. This yeah, is a classic line yeah. for this administration. Yeah, they're the only ones reading newspapers anymore. But uh, it seems that they 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 certainly read about these uh, these scandals that they find themselves in the middle of. What is the Benghazi angle that you write about in your piece here? Again, this is Andy McCarthy writing on NationalReview.com. And he's got a piece here that looks at the Podesta leaks and how that ties into the Obama-Clinton email exchanges. What's the Benghazi angle, Andy? Well, here's the thing, and this is is mainly a timing thing. And, you know, this is like uh, most sort of intelligence puzzles. I I can't guarantee that this is what happened, but these are the the pieces of the puzzle that we have. Uh, The Times breaks the story on March 2nd, 2015. The House issues a subpoena for all of for Mrs. Clinton's emails on March 4th, two days later. Uh, there's a email exchange between and among people in the Clinton campaign, including Cheryl Mills again and Robbie Mook, who is the, uh, the campaign manager. And what Mook says to uh, Mills is, by the way, this subpoena is only for the Benghazi emails, right? Not for all the emails. And Mills confirms that this is correct. In the middle, timing-wise, of this exchange between Mills and and Mook is when this communication between Podesta and Mills happens, where Podesta raises the problem of the the emails between Clinton and Obama. So it seems to me that you have to ask, because Benghazi was really one of the things that tripped all of this, the, the, the fact that they had issued a subpoena and were demanding Mrs. Clinton's emails, and then all of a sudden Podesta is worried about emails between Clinton and Obama, you have to at least ask, is that because there was some tie 
between the Clinton-Obama emails and Benghazi, because that seems to be something that they were very concerned about at the time that uh, that Podesta thought it was important enough to talk to Mills about, you know, what do we do about these Hillary-Obama emails? Do you think it's is a big reason this hasn't been more of a a landed punch on the Clinton campaign is it just is it just the complexity and the duration of all this? Is that you think what? Because, you know, as you make the case and as I sit here and I pull it all together in my head and think about all the times it's been lied about, all of the information that we now know, it would seem to be devastating. But I feel like in the public mind, it's not. It's certainly not for you know election purposes because of the complexity and because we've been talking about it for so many months. Or, or is there something else that I'm that I'm missing? Well, I, I don't. Th- I don't think there's one answer, but I think w- the answer you're giving here is the, is the closest one. If there were a single complete answer, I heard uh, Brett Baer on Fox one day last week talking about Benghazi and saying that you know there was such a great story there, but it was complicated. And one of the big problems, is, especially when you're dealing with people's attention spans being so limited, and there being so much news, is that with Benghazi. It was sufficiently complex that every time you reported the story, you kind of had to tell the whole story to explain how these new pieces fit in. And it just makes it a little bit difficult for people to wrap their brain around. And then I think, you know, the other thing that you have to acknowledge is that, you know, Trump is kind of uh, bounding around like the, uh, you know, like the 2000 pound elephant all over everything uh, in a way and and. Making either outrageous statements or being involved in in uh, very notable incidents that are easy to report, so he was kind of dominating the news, and I, I think sucking a lot of the oxygen out of what was available for all the other newsworthy stories. And then, of course, there's the fact that uh, you know I, I think sometimes, Buck, we've we've had this wrong. Those of us who say that the press is an adjunct of the Democratic Party. Um, I'm starting to think that actually it's the Democratic Party that's an adjunct of, of the, press, <laughs> the press, and that they're really the they're steering the the right, uh, they're calling you know, the, the shots. movement progressives. Uh, but you know, the fact of the matter is, if it's a story that's harmful to Democrats, they'll grudgingly report it just so they can say they did. But they certainly just don't give it the kind of attention that they would give if this was a similar story involving Republicans. Just a fact. Now, Andy, there's something else that's come up in the news the last couple of days, and I don't want to be conspiratorial, um, but but I do think there's there's definitely some meat on the bone here. It has to do with this general who has now pled to uh, saying, or sorry, he he has pled guilty to lying to the FBI during the course of a leak investigation to the press. I have two thoughts on this, and I wanted your uh, your sense of you know how how much I'm on on the mark here, and maybe how much I might be a little bit mm-hmm. reaching. One. Is that this? See, this when we, when you and I and others talk about the sort of special treatment that the Clintons got by giving immunity to people around them, by setting up the procedures the way that they did. This sort of sword of Damocles that hangs over the heads of normal people when they deal with the FBI was taken away in the whole Clinton investigation, right? There was no way that they were going to run afoul of lying. And, and some people actually argue they did run afoul of lying to federal investigators, and, but that's a whole even separate point. 
So I feel like the the the, the disparate treatment of this this uh, retired general versus Hillary and her inside circle is apparent from the way the investigation was conducted. And then the place where it might be reaching a little bit is I feel like this is DOJ saying, don't get any ideas, anyone, just so you know, that was a Hillary and friends only exception. We'll still crush people for violating aspects of either the Espionage Act or in this case, actually just lying to federal investigators. Well, maybe we're in the same conspiracy boat together then, because I think both those things are right. I, you know, look, Boom. I, I've been saying victory. Bunch, Sorry, go ahead. Well, Eddie. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I think it's right. I mean, I, I, I think I've been saying from the beginning, you know, having been around this kind of stuff for a long time, there's a way that the Justice Department acts and the FBI acts when they're trying to make a case versus how they act when they're trying to not make a case. And it seems to me that this is a classic comparison between these two. And if you want to see why, just put Mrs. Clinton on the side for a second, if that's possible. This character, Paul Cumbetta, who they gave immunity to, immunity from prosecution, right? Complete immunity, not, uh, you know, not just... Uh, not limited uh, immunity, trans- yeah. Uh, limited immunity, right? Um, he, how did he end up getting immunity? He lied to the FBI about destroying, well, you know, not, he said he hadn't had anything to do with uh, destroying emails, which was a total lie. And they knew it was a total lie. Now, in a normal case, what you do is you squeeze him to plead guilty and tell you everything he knows in exchange for sentencing leniency. Instead, what they did in this national security investigation, like just like with this general, involving mishandling of classified information, just like with this general, with a guy lying to the FBI, just like this general, they gave him a complete pass. And then he tells an implausible story once they give him immunity. Uh, he says, well, yeah, I did destroy the emails, but the conversations I was having with Clinton's people at the very same time and the congressional subpoena that came at the same time that I was doing that destruction, that had nothing to do with it. I just had a moment where I remembered something that was said to me months ago and said, oh, my goodness, I forgot to destroy those emails. Yeah, he found That's the post-it really- note on his desk. Yeah, right. So this, this story that he tells is preposterous. And I, I actually heard uh, Director Comey, who I have a great deal of admiration for, but, you know, it is what it is. He says in his testimony that, you know, look, I don't judge whether uh, what he's saying is true or not. I don't, I don't have to trust him. What I have to be able to do is do I have evidence that proves that what he's saying is not true. Now, I must say I was a prosecutor for 20 years. Um, I learned in the same office that uh, that Jim did. I had a fair amount of success doing it. Uh, I never heard of a rule that if you don't have positive evidence that somebody's lying, that you have to accept whatever preposterous story they tell you. <laughs> and I have a, I, my sense of things is I wouldn't have been a prosecutor very long if that was the way I went about yeah, things. I, I think you're right there, Andy. Andy McCarthy, everybody from the Nash Review Institute. Read his latest on NashReview.com and definitely, definitely give him a follow on Twitter. Andy, always great to have you, sir. Thank you for your time. Thanks so much, Buck. Uh, team, we've got to go to break. Be right back. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. Sex Day. Show. 
And I was kind of happy when uh, I had uh, Andy McCarthy, uh, whom I hold in the, in the highest regard, uh, agree with me there about the prosecution of this general. Although it actually gave me the chills, it gave me the willies for a second there. I'm a little bit like, oh, God, here we go. Yeah, that's right. They, they couldn't even wait until the election for the DOJ to come out and say, oh, no, no, anybody else gets crushed. It was a Hillary-specific get-out-of-jail-free card on national security investigatory uh, per- investigative procedure as well as the substance of what she did. So this general now is facing prison time for, as he says, lying about leaking something that was he believed already known, I think. I mean, it's crazy, everybody. More coming. Stay with me. Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. All right, team. Welcome to hour three in the Freedom Hut. It is time for a Buck Brief. You are entering the Blaze Threat Ops Center. This is a secure space. All outside comms are down. Prepare to receive the Buck Brief. Day three of the battle for Mosul. We're joined by Jim Reese, who's the founder and chairman of Tiger Swan and a former Delta Force operator to talk to us now about what's going on over there. Jim, great to have you. Buck, how you doing today? Are we listening to any Nickelback today? Uh, Nickelback? (laughs) (laughs) How how did you hack into my Spotify playlist, Jim? (laughs) We'll have to talk about this another time. So uh, so you were just you were just in Iraq, right? Yes, sir. I was. Yeah, I was. Uh, what's, uh, tell me, tell me what you were able to pick up from, from being over there on the ground. Yeah, well, it's, it's a very exciting time for the Iraqis, as you can imagine. Um, unfortunately, everyone around the world continues to show a negative piece at this, but I, what I see from a positive standpoint with the entire coalition, the anti-DICE coalition is, is right now the Iraqis are attacking, you know, their second largest city in Mosul with a coalition of Shia, Sunni, and Kurds. Uh, with, with the Western coalition forces helping them synchronize this piece. And, you know, if you really stop and look at it, it's very exciting for the Iraqis. they got the Kurds from the north, and, uh, and this is going to be a sluggish battle. And I'm calling this kind of the modern-day Stalingrad, but I think it's a great, great day for the Iraqis. And I think six to nine months from now, it's going to be a, a, a great defeat for Daesh. Now, I know you've got a senior Iraqi general, according to the Associated Press here, who's been calling on ISIS or Daesh fighters uh, to lay down their arms and give up. I think all expectations are that that's not going to happen. There's some pretty uh, brutal footage that's been making the rounds from CNN and, and other news outlets of suicide bombers who clearly they, they could give up, but they'd rather you know hit the plunger and, and detonate the vest. Uh, this fight is going to be nasty. It's going to continue on for a matter of weeks at a minimum. Are the Iraqi forces, you think, up to up to the task, Jim? I mean, you're somebody who would really know. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I sat there last year and, and spent you know a month and a half of them during the Battle of Tikrit, which really took four or five months. 
You've watched what's going on at El Umbar, and, and you've been talking about it for the last several months. Yes, the Iraqis are up for it. Is it going to be weeks? No, it's going to be months. Uh, but like you said, it would be great if, if ISIS would just lay down their arms. But where are these guys going to go if they lay down their arms? Where are they going to go? They're going to get you know put into prison and by the Iraqis, and most of these folks are not even from the region. They're foreign fighters, so they're going out with a bang. So it's going to be a slugfest, like you said. What's morale like among uh, Kurdish, Peshmerga, and, and Iraqi Iraqi army forces coming up from Baghdad? I mean, do, do they feel like there's a, a certain sense of, of camaraderie between their forces? And also, is there a sense of, of payback against the Islamic State here? I mean, what were you able to pick up from your discussions with, uh, you know, ISF, Iraqi security forces? Well, it's exciting. You know, and I've got a couple guys, you know, we, we were going back and forth as I was coming from the south. And I've got a couple of our Tiger Swan folks up in Erbil and, you know, even in Kurdistan, the buzz, everyone's excited. And I think what they're excited about, again, is, is the Iraqi people. You know, we, we turn this into this whole thing about, oh, the Sea or the Sunni, the Kurds. These are the Iraqis. They're, they're, they're putting these, this religion aspect to the side. And what they're really excited about now is they've got their Western partners that have been doing this now for years with them, left them for a little bit. But they're back uh, with the JTACs and the coordination and the communication, um, you know, surgical bombing, AC-130. Boy, they're excited. And this is, uh, you know, not, not, to put, not to put this type of aspect into, you know, into a sporting, but this is Monday night football for them. And they're excited. I mean, it's going to be ugly. It's going to be bloody. Uh, but they're excited, and, and they're looking to, to really close Daesh out of, of, of Mosul and get their get their country back. Now, U.S. Uh, spec ops forces are on the front lines here. As you said, they're, they're helping with, you know, you've got, you've got uh, air combat controllers helping with airstrikes. You've got people who are uh, assisting on the intel side of things, and I'm sure doing some other secret squirrel stuff that uh, we'll just sort of leave out in the ether. Uh, is this sort of a return, in a sense, or is this a replay of the model used by special operations to get rid of the uh, Taliban in Afghanistan with airstrikes, some ground support. But, you know, how, how do you view is, – is this what we can expect not just for this but for other uh, conflicts perhaps in Syria next door and other places where the Islamic State exists using indigenous forces as the main ground force, U.S. combat enablers and assistants and intel personnel and airstrikes? Is, is this the formula now? It is. And, and, Buck, you've been there. You've been on the ground. You know it is. The American people aren't going to go with 150,000 conventional forces anymore. But our, you know, and, and I'll use this generally, our, the coalition West Special Operation Forces, the U.S., the Brits, the Australians, uh, the French, they've got some, as you know, along with the intelligence communities, very, very capable aspects that are out there. And you know, when you when you take a 10 man special forces team and you put them with an Iraqi battalion with their communications, their JTACs, their ISR, you know, those that the the, um, the eyes in the sky, boy, that brings a combat multiplier. And again, an excitement to the indigenous force to know that the greatest military power is standing behind them and in support of them. It really gives them a, a sense of, a, of a, a posture. And yes, this will continue on into Syria. And I believe it's what we need to do as a nation, uh, you know, to continue this anti, anti-ISIS destruction. I mean, just to, to give uh, folks listening without a military background some sense, I mean, part of the advantage here 
you meant you know you mentioned uh, an SF team embedded with an with an Iraqi battalion, but but if there's say a a dug in ISIS fighting position in Mosul, and you know and they we've we've been reading about tunnel networks, they've obviously got IEDs up the wazoo all over the place. They've been preparing for this for a long time, but without U.S. support, a dug in fighting position could mean the Iraqis have to take pretty heavy casualties, and you know they're just essentially assaulting this thing old school. With U.S. combat air combat controllers and air power, they can turn that they can turn that hardened fighting outpost into rubble and move on down to the next street, right? So, I mean, there's an essential combat advantage that's provided to these Iraqi ground forces by a limited U.S. presence. There's absolutely. I mean, we learned this very early on in Iraq ourselves. You know, why do pickets charge? Hey, diddle diddle, right up the middle. When you can isolate, you know, like you said, you've got a bunker system, isolate it, bring in an AC-130. Bring in a JDAM because you have a JTAC over here with a laser who can literally put that laser right on the opening, boom, and it's gone. And then you walk on to the next one. So it really does. It, 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 it helps the confidence of the soldiers on the ground, but then you're not putting those soldiers literally in harm's way because you've got this great Air Force above you. And, and remember, the Iraqis have worked very diligently now with their Air Force, with their with their uh, helicopter gunships. So um, it's, it's very exciting to watch. And, boy, this is a year and a half coming. But I think the also thing is the Americans have got it, the people out there listening to you have got to realize is we've got some young, hard-charging generals out there, Steve Townsend, Mike Garrett, um, guys have been doing this for a long time, and they're motivated to help the Iraqis take down Mosul. Why has it taken 18 months? Out of curiosity, I mean, it seems like, you know, if I had sat if I had sat you down, Jim, with a number of generals over a year ago, this would seem to have been the plan, right? U.S. Uh, some U.S. special operations embedded with Iraqi forces. Was it just the logistical hurdles and challenges of getting the Iraqi forces up to speed, getting them in a place where they were able to do this? But why why the delay? I think a lot of people would wonder. You know, it's it's while this is a a very positive development, I've said that here on the show, and you're saying it now, and you were just over there in Iraq. It seems like it's taken a long time for us to get to this place, or it's taken the Iraqis a long time to get to this place. Is it just because of the, the massive uh, logistical and strategic challenges of getting the forces arrayed necessary to take back a major city? It, it does. and you know, But the other piece, too, is there's a huge geopolitical aspect that, unfortunately, we all have to, we all have to work in and understand. It's not just throwing on you know, special ops on your, on your, on your TV and, and, and playing that game and, and winning. The geopolitical side is very critical. I mean, as you know, Buck, you've watched this for years. You know, you got the Turks. You've got the Iraqis and the Turks starting to butt heads a little bit. You've got the Iraqi Kurds caught in the middle. You've got Syria. You've got the Russians now saying, don't push ISIS into Syria. Uh, so the geopolitical piece is, it's tough. Yep, it's very easy to, to fire back at the politicians all the time. Um, mostly because I think a lot of them don't know what to do. You know, they've never been trained in this aspect. Um, but yes, there's a logistical piece for this also. The Rockies don't have the ability to fight in two different directions. So they made the determination last summer after Tikrit to go west, you know, to, to really seal off the Euphrates River Valley up to Raqqa. And what I really believe is happening is we're setting up this next phase, which is the destruction of, of ISIS, Daesh, inside of Syria, because we've got the, the, the Euphrates River Valley going out to the western of Syria. At the end of that is Raqqa. We come back around, we've got Mosul. We push that out. 
you've already got forces coming from the coming from the north, from Kobani and places up there. And then it's really the geopolitical, how do we get the Russians and the Syrians from affecting this? And again, you know, just as well as I do, that will become an interesting um, battle of words over the next year or two. Yeah, well, the, the big difference all along has been while the Iraqi ground forces as a partner in, in destroying the Islamic State or really as, as the prime mover in that on Iraqi soil, at least you've had that ground force there, right? It, it's, it's needed some tweaks. It's needed training and, and capability upgrades. But now we're seeing that unleashed against the Islamic State. On the Syrian side, uh, we got some, we've got some Kurdish militias, which makes the Turks very uneasy. So if we were to replicate the if we're tr- if, if if the U.S. was to try to replicate the Mosul model for Raqqa, for example, there are some challenges that would immediately come up with that, aren't there? Well, there is, and we're we're already seeing it. Um, you know, with the with the YPG, you know, the Turks are not happy about us being uh, integrated with them. You know, they think they're a terrorist organization. So when you start getting up at this strategic level, it is a dance, um, and it's a difficult dance. And, you know, what sides are you playing with? And, and again, I've been saying for, for several months now is I think the big coalition we have to be very careful about is a coalition of Turkey and Russia. You know, Turkey's our native partner, but they're not happy. They're not happy with us. And a coalition of Russia and Turkey could be devastating in Syria for us and for the world that we just continue to be in this ugly OODA loop of, of, of distress inside Syria. How long do you think it is before we see, and I, I know I'm asking you to tell us the future here, Jim, but how, is, it, is it a year plus out before there's a real push to retake Raqqa? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you're looking at probably minimum six months um, into, into Mosul. So, you know, let's call it the first quarter of, of 2017. And then you got, you know, you, you got to get real set. Now, the Iraqis, it's not going to be the Iraqis because, you know, I don't believe the Iraqis are going to cross the international borders uh, into in Raqqa, but they're going to push out there and they're going to, you know, they're going to do clearing operations all the way up the Euphrates River Valley out to their west, out to Talafar, you know, which, you know, we got Americans uh, that were killed out there for all those years. And then it's going to really be is what is the decision point to go after Raqqa and those areas along the Euphrates River Valley up north in Syria? And who are those forces? The Turks want to play. They don't want to play with the, you know, with the with the Kurdish Syrian forces. So that will be the next challenge for, you know, our yeah. State Department. And, and do the Iraqis allow uh, Nineveh province to be used as a sort of forward staging area yeah. for anti-ISIS operations into Syria, which could get messy real fast? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I believe they will. I believe they will. But again, it'll be uh, it'll be it'll be a dance for our State Department and intelligence folks. Jim Reese is the founder and chairman of Tiger Swan. He's a former Delta operator. Jim, thank you for your time, for your service, and for your call, sir. Always great to talk to you. You too, Buck. You guys have a great day. Thanks for your service. Uh, Team, we will go into a break, and we'll be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Dispensing the truth. This is Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. I tried to warn the Nobel Committee. I told them 
that Bob Dylan was the most overrated music act of all time. They didn't listen. They gave him a Nobel Peace Prize for literature, which is preposterous, almost as preposterous as giving a, new, a newly elected President Obama the Nobel Peace Prize just because. Uh, but they can't find him. The Nobel Prize Committee uh, has been unable to make contact <laughs> with Bob Dylan. Quote, we have stopped trying. We said everything we needed to his manager and friend. He knows about us being eager to have confirmation from him, but we haven't heard anything back. Ad Shidrik, the administrative director of the Swedish Academy, told CNN yesterday. <laughs> they gave him the Nobel Peace Prize and he don't, like, doesn't even want it. <laughs> I'm sorry, Nobel Prize for Literature, not Peace Prize. But they gave him a Nobel Prize and he doesn't want it. Uh, he doesn't deserve it and he doesn't want it. And I guess who cares? I can't do Swedish accents at all. I'm like, Bob Dylan? Have you, we can't? Uh, no, I, I try to do Swedish and I sound like Count, Count Chocula. Uh, that's not good. Uh, all right. Kevin in New Jersey. You're on the Bucks Action Show. What's up? Kevin. Hey. So uh, I'm actually catching up on your podcast. I'm about a week behind but I was calling to comment about uh, one of the guests that you had on from the 11th, which was uh, Betsy McCoy. And just to put it in context, I know you've said a couple of times that during this election cycle, uh, people who are, I guess, hardcore conservatives have sort of turned into guys who are in the corner who are having a contest over who can quote the Bill of Rights best and becoming a little bit more relevant. But did I say some snarky yeah. things like that? I guess I did. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, I, I think that that's something that's still very necessary. And the reason is because when, and I know you don't like to uh, go at your guests or anything like that. I hope you don't mind that I'm sort of being critical of her. But no, of I course, of course. Go I, ahead. I, I think she sort of characterized the erosion of conservative thinking, and uh, that's sort of what's been going on in this election cycle. So when you introduced her, you said that she was a constitutional scholar and the former lieutenant governor of New York. Well, I mean, that, that's that's her bio, right? That's not that's not like me putting my blessing on, on, her, on her credentials. That's her official bio, but yeah. Okay. Um, but she then started talking about Obamacare. And what I got from her was that Obamacare was bad for... A few reasons. Number one, because it floods doctors' offices with more patients, which makes it harder for the elderly to get appointments. And then she praised Medicare, which, by her own admission, underpays for services and survives by shifting the cost of those services to people who have private insurances. And then she wrapped up by urging the elderly to oppose Obamacare so as to preserve Medicare for themselves. And to me, that's sort of like a summary of the whole problem with people who are called conservatives or constitutional scholars these days, even if it's you know, self-described. We have a lot of people who call themselves, quote-unquote, practical conservatives during this election cycle who oppose a person who I consider to be a conservative, who was Cruz. And it's for reasons like this where people oppose liberal plans, for example, like Obamacare, but often when you talk with them, it's for, quote-unquote, the wrong reasons or non-conservative reasons, which I would yeah. sort of ascribe to her. 
I got you. Kevin, man, please uh, catch up on those podcasts. He wants you up to speed with the, with the hut. But uh, I appreciate you calling in from New Jersey. Good to talk to you. And thank you for sharing your thoughts. There's a lot you covered there, so I don't know what to specifically respond to other than, yeah, some people aren't as conservative as they pretend. Some people are less conservative than they think they are, and you figure that out the moment you start speaking to them. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I also received some pushback about Betsy as a guest just on the – uh, on on some of the things she said about Obamacare specifically, I can't remember off the top of my head, but somebody who was in the healthcare field wrote me and said, "This is wrong, this is wrong, and this is wrong." So I'll see if I can find that. Um, yeah, I like to yeah, I like to be polite to guests, but I also like to make sure I'm giving you all of the accurate facts and figures. Uh, why don't we speak about Obamacare for a minute? We come back and maybe some other stuff. Maybe we can help the Nobel Peace or the Nobel darn it Nobel Committee to find Bob Dylan. Mr. Tambourine Man. We'll be right back. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Team, the uh, phone lines are still open. 888-900-3393. Hey, Rich from White Plains. How you doing, buddy? Hey, Buck. I'm going to make your day. Oh, great. I'm going to make your day. So Bob Dylan got the Nobel Prize for Literature. You know, there's only one explanation for that. You're going to make me sing it? The times, they are a-changing. Wow. Okay. <laughs> what else you got, Rich? This is this is all meant to cheer you up. Oh, I appreciate uh, my new cons- that. My new conspiracy theory. I th- I think that uh, Andy McCarthy is the younger brother of Rudy Giuliani, separated at birth. What? Well, Rich. they they, they okay. look alike. Uh, they, they sound alike. Not re- really. No. Come on, man. Do you think they look alike? They they, they have the same lisp. <laughs> oh, okay, Buck. All right, Rich, you're gone. It's been good. It's been real, buddy. High five. Thank you, Rich. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> I can't. Oh, Rich. Rich held on for a long time, too, to, to sing and to tell me that Andy McCarthy and Rudy Giuliani related. I love the enthusiasm for the show. I just I figured maybe there was some policy he wanted to talk about or something like that. Anyway, thanks for calling, Rich. Uh, all right. Obamacare, not so great. So uh, Wall Street Journal has a piece out today. I'm, I'm hoping, hoping against hope, that maybe this gets some attention in tonight's debate. I think we all realize that is very, very unlikely to be the case. I mean, it'll be a little, like a little bit, but it'll be superficial, right? It won't get any real attention. It'll be kind of like, meh, they'll talk about it for a sec, and then they'll want to move on to something else. Uh, they'll want to talk about, you know, what this woman said and what that woman said, and that's what the debate's going to turn into, I think. But in case you were wondering, Obamacare is coming apart at the seams. You've got the finalized rates for uh, the big health insurance companies around the country showing massive premium increases, 30% or more in Alabama, Delaware, Hawaii, Kansas, Mississippi, and Texas. Uh, in states including Arizona, Illinois, Montana, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, and Tennessee, the the approved rate increases for market leader insurers top 
50%. In New Mexico, the Blue Cross Blue Shield plan agreed to resume selling plans, has been, but only after it was allowed to increase rates 93% on their 2015 level. So there are only 10 million people who get their coverage through one of these exchanges. But this is a window into the future, my friends. This is what conservatives have been saying all along, what the right, generally speaking, has been saying all along about Obamacare. It is a fundamentally flawed. And now we start to get into the place where was it flawed on purpose? But put that thought on hold for a minute. It is a flawed Uh, system. It is a flawed mechanism. The apparatus is corroded. It is structurally unsound because the fines aren't big enough for for young people to want to buy into this. A lot of them are still just paying the fine and not getting insurance. And most of the people who are going into these pools willingly, or many of the people, I should say, who are going into these pools willingly are greater consumers of health care and some of the people going into these pools are not getting subsidies. And so, therefore, they're getting a really bad because they're getting bad insurance that they're forced to buy. And it's expensive for what it is. So it's really only those who fall within the guidelines of the subsidies that are getting some benefit out of this. And even and, and even when you look at it apart from the subsidy, what you see is that if it wasn't. Keep on the subsidy is just taxpayer dollars. That's just government money getting shoveled to some people. So it's when people say it's a subsidy, it's like, oh, well, isn't that so nice? No, that's money coming from you. That's just money coming from the federal government. They're giving people money to buy these plans. The federal government doesn't have any of its own money. It has to take your money, right? And when you see the way the market's actually functioning here as much as the market can function, it's an unsustainable system. It's going to require more and more infusions of taxpayer cash to keep these exchanges afloat because of the very basic economics of the situation, which is that, generally speaking, healthy young people don't want to buy into Obamacare exchanges. Older, sicker people do. Some of the older, sicker people who are buying in get subsidies. Some don't. And they're using health care at a higher rate than a normal insurance pool would. So the expenses for the insurers are going up. So the insurers then have to raise rates on everybody, and this just keeps happening over and over again. This is the future of Obamacare. This is what the reality of it is. This is what it is going to be. Um, I see an enormous opening here. Well, I don't know. Is it an enormous opening for Trump? I mean, I'd like to say, you know, if, if Trump could sound wonky for like three minutes, he doesn't have to sound wonky. He just needs to be like, Obamacare is super expensive. It's not good insurance. I go into a bunch of doctor's offices, by the way, <coughs> and I think a lot of them have signs up that say that they don't want to uh, or that they will not accept plans that are bought off of the exchanges. So already doctors are saying, eh, I'm not really I'm not really loving this whole thing because they know that the reimbursement rates aren't going to be great. And but then we get into the, is it is it destined to fail? Is that the that the point all along? And there's been differences even among conservatives, I know, in this. Some think that, no, they really wanted Obamacare to function as subsidized government. It's not really government care. It's just sort of uh, government setting the, uh, you know, setting the levels of care within a market that they're kind of constantly tinkering with. 
But it's not single payer, right? It's not just the government pays for your health care. The government also controls, right? Socialized medicine, which is what people sometimes call Obamacare, is the government in charge of the delivery of health care services. So that's even a step beyond. Single payer is the government picks up the tab for your health care. And there are regulations, but it's not like a normal – it's not just like a blank check they give you. You know, the government, you know, like with Medicare, will pick up some things, not others. But at, but at the end of the day, Uncle Sam is the one on the hook for a majority of the expense. Right? That's Medicare and that's Medicaid or, or all of the expenses. Uh, socialized medicine is that the government employs doctors and says, you know, how many patients doctors have to see, what treatments they can give, you know, how often they can treat and all that sort of stuff. Now, that would come after a savior. First, you need a single-payer system in place. Um, and before you get to single-payer, you have to have this sort of government subsidy system collapse, meaning that it just becomes too expensive. It's too expensive. And especially if Republicans in Congress fight the bailout mechanisms for these exchanges, and then the exchanges really, and then all of a sudden the insurers are crying out saying, we're going to go under, we can't, we can't do this. You know, it's all it's all based. This is like Bastiat, the law, right? This this is all people trying to live at the expense of everybody, everybody else. The basic lie of socialism, of statism, is that you can benefit and you can live at the expense of everyone else and it won't affect you. That's the the underlying promise. And with Obama, with, with health care in this country, that's where we've seen this more than anywhere else. You can pay twenty dollars for a doctor's visit and that's all you're expected to pay. And everything else is covered and your prescriptions are are greatly subsidized. I know this isn't the case for most of you, but I'm saying this is what the perception becomes. Depends on your health care plan. And this is just all fine and good and somebody else is paying for it. Eventually, somebody else is paying for it catches up with us. And we're getting closer and closer to that already with the Obamacare system. And keep in mind, this is only for 10 million people. This The employer mandate hasn't kicked in yet, which will affect many, many millions more. Once the employer mandate kicks in, then this thing really becomes, you know, this becomes a real disaster. Then we got big, big problems. Huge, huge problems. This is what Trump should spend a lot of his time tonight on, I think, because this affects every American. Because even the even the sort of sequestered 10 million individual insurance market, individual uh, individually bought insurance market has... Uh, ripple effects on the rest of the insurance market, right? And it also, as I've said, is a harbinger of things to come. This is sort of a microcosm, and we're going to get to the macrocosm as Obamacare is rolled out, and there are big problems with this. There are going to be even more. Um, anyway, let's go into a break, and uh, we'll be back in just a few. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. Listening to the Buck Sexton Show only on the Blaze Radio Network. So, when is it demagoguery and when is it speaking truth to power? It's a question I'd want you to keep in mind as we get into the final weeks here of this presidential election. There's been a lot of a uh, lot of sad faces and, and angry faces out there about Donald Trump's comments with regard to the election being 
rigged in some capacity, right? People are saying, oh, it is a crime against democracy to say that the election is rigged. How could he? Keep in mind that people were, I'm pretty sure, didn't they throw eggs at President uh, Bush's car or his limousine after he won the election because they said the Supreme Court stole the election? And you'll still hear, hear people say the Supreme Court stole the election from Bush. And so this kind of rhetoric is, you know, it's out there. Um, but more specifically, uh, and this is courtesy of the Washington Free Beacon, um, and I know this has, been, this has been making the rounds ever. This is a great mashup that the Free Beacons pulled together. The idea that the system is rigged, which Trump is saying, and has made a lot, look, he's gotten a lot of, made a lot of political hay out of this, right? He's been using this for maximum benefit for his campaign. But this is not something that's specific to Trump at all. This is a widespread talking point. Certainly on the left, maybe a little bit on the right. But Bernie Sanders' whole campaign was all about it being rigged. And by the way, President Obama says stuff is rigged. This is the free beacon with a mashup of how rigged everything is. Play it. Of course the elections will not be rigged. What does that mean? That's ridiculous. That doesn't make any sense. And I don't think anybody would take that seriously. Ordinary folks can't write massive campaign checks or hire high-priced lobbyists and lawyers to secure policies that tilt the playing field in their favor at everyone else's expense. And so people get the bad taste that the system's rigged. Too many people feel like the system is rigged and their voices don't matter. And when good people are pushed away from participating in our public life, more powerful and extreme voices will fill the void. Wait, is that it? I thought we had more. Okay. All right. We have Obama saying the system's rigged a bunch of times. So which is it? Is it a crime against our system to say that it is rigged? Is it a crime against democracy, against Western civilization itself? Or, yeah, is it a little bit rigged? Look, I think everything is kind of rigged these days. I, I, I think that people should grow up telling their kids, you know, play fair, but understand that nobody else does. Uh, that, that's If I had children, which, you know, maybe one day, guys, I'm working on it. Um, if I, not like that, you know what I mean. Um, if I had children or a dog, not that those are similar. I'm just going to stop. The point here is this. The system, <laughs> sorry, there's a lot of places where the system is rigged. And it's not wrong to point that out. It's just a question of how you want to address it and how much you focus on it, right? But life is unfair. This is very important. I think millennials are actually in some way more aware of it than anybody else. It's why they want to create these safe spaces and have these concerns about having to interact in the real world. Uh, with the Internet now, with the ability to both communicate instantaneously and also do we, we can all do our own research in a way that, 30 years ago was completely impossible, right? I, I can sit here and do more political research from the Freedom Hut desk than the entire ABC News team would have been capable of doing in the 1980s. That's just a fact. Um, just, it's just better. Um, we, we, I, I could do more research and, and pull together more information. And I think that as people see that and, and are able to do that, they become more aware of, yeah, the system, isn't, the system is rigged. This is true. These, these are truisms. Or these are truths, rather. And it's funny the Democrats now are all about respect for the system, and it's all so great. Meanwhile, you know, these are the same people that were telling us that the Supreme Court handed the election or stole the election from Al Gore and handed it to George W. Bush and are constantly saying that lobbyists and, and sort of dark money and special interests are buying elections. Don't don't pay any attention to the fact that Jeb Bush spent like a hundred and whatever million dollars and got nowhere 
that doesn't disprove their theory that money buys elections or it doesn't even factor into their thinking about money buying elections. Don't even worry about that. It's just a good talking point. And they love their good talking points on the left. Uh, as long as they can get people fired up and riled up about things, that is their primary goal. But I just think it's funny. President Obama's like, of course it's not rigged. And we've got him saying, oh, yeah, people start to feel like things are rigged. Uh, n- nothing really surprises us anymore, does it? There's a freedom to all this. There's actually a sense of, of letting go that I think is, is nice. We don't have to pretend that we think politicians are honorable and that our political system is yeah it was it was devised by geniuses but it's certainly not run by geniuses now and it's suffered a lot of damage you know it's like an old creaking warship that still gets the job done and still impressive in its own way but it's got plenty of problems but i don't i, I think there's a comfort in cynicism now and it's okay we don't have to be cynical about each other we just have to be cynical about the system about those who govern us about those who seek to have power over us See, you and I and the rest of the Team Buck crew and the rest of your fellow conservatives and, yeah, your fellow Americans, you know, we can all look at each other and not worry about uh, not worry about things the same way we have to when we look at those who want to be the next president of the United States, who want to be running the federal bureaucracy. So I don't know. I'm, I'm actually in favor of cynicism. It's kind of a defense of cynicism when it comes to our government. Not about all things. You know, there's still things to be happy about. There's still puppies and Netflix. But... That's what I want to think about going into tonight's debate because it's going to be brutal, everybody. It's going to be brutal. I'll be live tweeting it, so uh, join me on the Twitter if you can, and I'll try to post things on Facebook too. Download today's show, team. Back with you tomorrow, as always. Shields high. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.